0: Welcome, I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. This week is a recorded episode with my guest, Michael Gagliardi. Michael is a writer and author of Devil Take the Hindmost, The True Story of Terror, as well as Devil Take the Hindmost Part 2, The Aftermath. He also speaks on paranormal, demonology, and biblical discoveries, educating people on the reality of a spiritual world and its inhabitants, the origins, functions, and the end game as it pertains to the human experience. Michael has a certificate in eschatology from the Henry Morris Institute and is a worship leader in his church for many years. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you on this beautiful sunny day in California.
0: Oh, well, that's that's lovely that it's nice there. <laughs> it's yeah. we're just we're hoping for a little warmer weather. We're waiting for spring. And I think it's 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 just around the corner.
1: Well, our warm weather is just about to start and we get into the hundreds for probably five months. It's triple digits, so. We're enjoying yeah. the the 87 is our winter.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoy that. That is that is amazing, because I really wish I could be enjoying some warm weather, but I, I, yeah, I'm sitting outside. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. Well, I'm going to pretend I'm out there with you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I actually read your book, um, the um, part one uh, a few months ago. Um, very fascinating and I can't even imagine what kind of terror that you had experienced as a child um but I do want to ask what does it mean to uh devil take the hindmost and um why did you why was that the title of your book
1: well I had I had several titles and and uh you know devil take the hindmost means that uh you know, the, the guy at the end of the line is the guy that gets taken. Basically, um, you know, if there's two guys and you have to outrun a bear, you, you don't have to outrun the bear. You have to outrun the guy, <laughs> the mm-hmm. other guy you're with. So that's the funny. one, basically the one left in behind most, that's absolutely what the word means. The most left behind is the one that gets taken. <laughs> and, um, you know, the experience, my childhood, it was... You know, it's something that I I felt like I was left behind. And mm. I know uh, my friend's mother, who used to kind of take care of me a little bit, uh, she she called me, and not a, in a derogatory way, but she called me one of those throwaway kids. And, you know, those kids that get left behind, those are the ones that, you know, a lot of bad stuff happens to, you know, because other people don't even intervene so it's uh that's basically where the title came from um i had a number of other titles but uh i went with that because that most represented um you know the culmination of of my whole childhood when you look at it you know there was no adult intervention no social services no no nothing so in 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 essence i did get left behind you know and I went to school like everybody else and and uh, no one ever, you know, asked what was wrong in my life. I never because I grew up in it and it was very gradual. um, There was no, uh, you know, a sense of urgency where I went to school and said, hey, I need help never crossed my mind. (laughs) So that title both really represented uh, what my uh, my whole lifetime uh, at that point was all about.
0: Wow. Well, I do. I know that as a, you know, as a as a as a child, when all you experience is all that you know, you think it's kind of normal, even though it's terrifying. You're like, this is what life is like. Um, At least that's how it was for me.
1: Yeah, Uh, it's like a syndrome almost, you know, because you can't, you you can't, you can't, uh, you know, when you're a child. You know, your mind is being formed. What's what's real? What's right? What's wrong? Yeah. And when you can't identify, you know, those those things. You know, what's right and what's wrong, and you don't act upon them. And, and if you know the, the children have a way of suppressing things, and I suppressed it greatly, probably in uh, opposite ways that most people would. I mean, by the time I was a teenager, I was I was never promiscuous. I was never into alcohol. I was never into drugs, though all my friends were. I never did anything like that. I went the opposite direction. I had to stay alert. I had to stay alive. I was a survivalist.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I was
1: a fittest. I had to really, really be aware and awake if I wanted to live. Wow.
0: Tell me about your experience as a child with your mother's behavior and kind of talk, get into her behavior um, if you will.
1: Well, it's, it's very bizarre. And like I said, it started uh, very gradually. Um, uh, the first incident happened when I was three years old. Um, you know, as a child, we were, you know, we were Italian. So we, you know, at lunchtime, most kids get this, uh, this, this, you know, kind of like alphabet star soup kind of deal. It's called (laughs) pasta fasule. And, uh, um, my mother would make it for me and call me to the table. Well, this one incident, she called me to the table first, and then she walked over to me and then dumped the scalding hot soup all down my left shoulder, which was which was shocking. <clears throat> and uh, she took me to, she took me to the doctor and we took a taxi ride there. And she never once um, held me or comforted me or even said any words to me. And even after I was treated, brought me back home nothing was said. She never hugged me. She never touched me. She never kissed me. <clears throat> so that was the beginning where I, you know, at three years old, I became very aware and alert. And I, of course I was traumatized by that, but it began to be more gradual where my mother started saying, she was hearing voices. She was starting to talk to herself. And, uh, you know, we moved, uh, 120 miles away to an isolated, very small town, which made the thing even worse because we had no family around. And, and uh, I still don't understand that move, but because um, my dad, you know, went all the way back down to Toronto to work 120 miles away. Wow. So it seems kind of counterproductive. But uh, once we started living in that house, by the time uh, by the time I was in grade one, grade two and grade three, My mother gradually got worse. She started uh, uh, talking to herself, whistling, um, you know, having conversations, you know, with people that weren't there for hours on end. By the time I was, uh, you know, for the sake of time, by the time I was a teenager, she began to conversate in multiple languages. Uh, Her voices would change to these growly Type of, you know, if you've ever listened to the Annalise Michelle tapes, you know, uh, (laughs) the the woman in Germany that was that was uh, recorded as they were doing her her exorcism. uh, She spoke like that and she spoke in many different languages and she didn't know she was very uneducated. She was only four foot eleven. But um, yeah, she was four foot eleven, but she weighed like 260 pounds. She was ravenously eating everything in the entire house to the point where, you know, as a child, I can't remember ever being full. I I began a lifetime of stealing food out of gardens, um, from school, from kids at school, uh, you know, out of lunch, lunch boxes and stuff like that for like six or seven years. No one ever caught me. And, uh, you know, I stole out of gardens (laughs) because, you know, in Canada, we have a lot of people with gardens, big gardens. Mm -hmm. And I stole and ate raw vegetables every day during the summer. And I'm even a vegan to this day. And more likely because of that yeah but but uh as it progressed you know my mother tried to uh, uh attempted murder on both of us um the social services came out uh, the mental institution came out the police came out they took her away in a straitjacket 3 months later they brought her back and you know i don't know what the policies uh, were in canada at that time but uh, you know of my understanding even when i was a kid back then it was like how can you bring a woman back into the house who's clearly disturbed <clears throat> with children in the house. And my mm-hmm. father was never there because he worked, you know, five, six days a week, hundred miles away. So she, by the time I was 16, I was ready to commit suicide because mm-hmm. I, I couldn't handle my mother. She was speaking in all these voices, screaming in the middle of the night, banging, thumping. I mean, it's, it's, it's more than likely. I have all the research that I've done. It's the worst, worst case of demonic possession uh in the history of all canada and uh i haven't gotten the uh the confirmation on that but i've read all the cases from the 13th century all over the world and this was horrendous and it went on for 12 years and it got worse and worse and worse until her death in 1987. she died of atherosclerosis because she had a heart attack, basically a blood clot and a heart attack at 46 years old, no gray hair, mm. nothing. But uh, her appearance was ungodly. She was, you know, four foot 11, 260 pounds. All her teeth were broken. Uh, every one of her molars, she would wag her tongue at me, you know, in a kind of deaf mute kind of thing. And you could see all her teeth were all broken and chipped her tongue was serrated on both sides from, you know, biting down on it on broken teeth. And it was all chewed up. It was a very gross appendage and she stunk to high heaven and she was appalling. She was just appalling. She would be hitting herself with a log in the chest for four years. She Mm -hmm. did that every day from sunup to sundown. till she was bloody and red and, Yeah, it was, it was, her behavior was, like I said, it happened over a decade, but by that time I was ready to kill myself. I was in high school and I began to fail my grades, even though I was an honor student, you know, I was an academic and, and I was starting to lose my mind. And then it it came down to one, one afternoon, I had come home and, Because my dad was trying to uh, uh, remedy the situation of her her overeating, uh, he put a big chain on the on our um, big freezer down in the in the basement, and that's where we kept all our food because there was no controlling her. <clears throat> and one one evening, I came downstairs and I saw her trying to hack the hack the hacksaw the chain off, and she just I just yelled out, "Hey!" And she looked over at me and she was growling at me like an animal with this really low voice. And it mm-hmm. scared the living daylights out of me. And her, she had hair in her eyes and she was snarling at me. And <clears throat> she threw the hacksaw down and ran upstairs. And, you know, by that time I'm six feet, you know, 130 pounds. And uh, she outran me up the stairs. I, I can't believe it. She's four foot 11, you know, 260 pounds. And she went into her room and slammed the door so incredibly loud, hard that the, uh, all the windows in the house were vibrating back and forth on almost ready to. To blow out, and uh, she was standing behind the door. I could hear her growling, and she was pressing on the door so hard that the door was bowing out toward me. And I was completely drawn to this. It was uh, it was like the culmination of it. I was like, okay, it's this is you or me. One of us is gonna die. Because mm. I couldn't take this anymore. My I was losing my mind. I slept with a hockey stick every night, and my. My dresser drawer lay, uh, um, laid down with bricks inside all the drawers and pushed up against the, uh, the, the, the door because she tried to get into my room every night and was screaming, running up and down the hall, screaming her head off. And it was so completely traumatizing for so many years. <clears throat> and then the one incident, like I told you about the hacksaw thing, I was standing outside the door and she was blocking the door and I waited there about 10 minutes. She threw the door open, or I threw the door open, and we met eyes for a second, and the left side of her face was all bulging out and pulsating uh, her over her left eyebrow and her left temple. She had a big, big bubble the size of a golf ball, and it was pulsating back and forth, and her eyes were just jet black holes. And she gnarled at me, and she she ran at me, <clears throat> and I took off down the hallway, and I went outside. She didn't follow me and she slammed the door again and all the windows were shaking. And what I just saw traumatized me beyond belief. I was standing outside in the driveway going, (laughs) and I was trying to say a word just to gain my composure and I couldn't say a word. So I reached in the door and I grabbed the phone. We, you know, back then we had dial tone phones Mm -hmm. with a rotary dial and uh, I knew my dad was in town. It was a Saturday afternoon and he was at his girlfriend's house. So I, I, I tried to dial the phone and I couldn't get my finger in the holes. And it took me like 20 minutes to dial the number. Finally, I, I got it. Um, I still couldn't speak. I was still, <laughs> you know, you mm, know, trying terrifying. to, yeah, I couldn't say one word. I was so completely traumatized by what I saw. And uh, um, she answered the phone and she, she heard me, you know, trying to say a word and she called my dad. And my dad got on the phone and, uh, you know, he hear me just stuttering and he said, OK, I'll be right there. And he was only a mile away. So he came home rather quickly and uh, he tried to ask me what was going on. I still couldn't talk. Um, I followed him inside the house. As soon as he opened the door, she grabbed him, threw him down to the ground and started scratching its face and, and growling, you know, in this very manly, deep voice. And she was just beating on him and thrashing on him. He, after a couple of minutes of the skirmaging, he managed to stand up and he ran outside and I ran outside right after him. And my father was completely traumatized. I never seen my dad so scared because he knew this wasn't his, his, the wife that he married, you know, he was seeing somebody who was just not that person. And so he ended up calling the, uh, police the police called the mental institution they came out and and they it's very interesting because her window was right close to the driveway and when all these men came you know in suits and all these authorities and they came and they were talking to her i could hear her through her window from outside and that was the first time i heard her normal voice speaking you know and she was saying like no officer there's nothing wrong and nothing's happened here and you know i was like what yeah. and uh, they took her away in a straitjacket back to the same mental institution and then 3 months later they brought her back i mean it was an incredible incredible failure on the authorities and the social services my sister took off after the first time she tried to kill her with a butcher mm-hmm. knife you know she went running outside and the neighbors all saw she terrorized the neighbors as well too. she knocked on their doors tell them she's going to cut their heads off and in voices wow. voices yeah so the police were always at our house and this was all suppressed by the local authorities and the mental institution and even after her attempted murder twice they brought her back <clears throat> she yeah. came back and social services came up to me and told me they were basically without saying the words telling me to run away because they didn't know how to deal with it they, they this diagnosis was above their their understanding And they didn't know what to do. And, you know, I, you know, I, I understand, I understand that because I, I lived through it, but uh, you know, I was a minor and I was a child and, you know, she, she came back and within a few months I, I, you know, I turned 18 and I booked it out of there to California and was homeless under the Santa Monica pier. I just had to leave. I just had Mm -hmm. to leave and I wanted to go as far away as possible. And you know people tell me people ask me you know well when you went to california did you feel relief and i said yeah i didn't feel any relief at all even though i was 3000 miles away and she didn't know where i was uh, you know that was the beginning of adulthood for me and now i'm i'm screwed up you mm-hmm. know i didn't go through puberty till i was 21 which is i've never heard of that in anybody but yeah oh. it took me till to 21 years old i my my body chemistry had changed so radically that I couldn't sleep. I was an insomniac for 18 years. I I had severe PTSD. In fact, so much that no psychiatrist would take me on when I told them their story. And I ended up with a POW uh, psychiatrist who was treating guys who were killing children and women in Vietnam. And he couldn't even deal with it. He's like, I I don't know how to help you.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah. And here I am at 53 years old. I've managed to uh, eke out a somewhat of a living and have a, a, a successful 36 year marriage. I have two kids and six grandkids, oh, wow. <laughs> but it hasn't been easy. And I still have blackouts. In fact, I blacked out two weeks ago. I was just sitting on the couch and pew, I went out because when I get, when I get, my body can't handle stress anymore. So yeah. when I get, when I get stressed. When it becomes too extreme, my body just shuts down and, and that's what happens. And, and I can just be sitting there and I'll just pass out. And 90% of the time it happens at nighttime because nighttime is when I have my.
0: The terrors. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I have, yeah.
1: Yes. Because at nighttime, I mean, my mother would do her thing during the day, but she always went into her bedroom at sunset soon as it, she went in sunset, and then the screaming and the banging started, and I would run into her room and go, what the hell is going on? All this banging. It sounded like three people fighting, you know, and, and wrestling. And I would go in there really quick, open the door, and she'd be lying on her bed with the covers pulled up to her eyes, and her eyes would be like saucers. And then she'd say, you know, Satan is jumping off, off the ceiling onto my chest. They come into me. Uh, they run up the back of my spine and in, and perch in my head <clears throat> and these are the things she would say to me we never had any normal conversations uh, that i could never remember and i just heard her normal voice when the police came over so <sighs> i i mean trying to trying to grab even now as, as a 54 year old i tried to grasp this that went on from day it's like she never slept because she terrorized us at nighttime. Walking up and down the hallway, screaming, hitting herself with a boot on the head and and this log smacking herself in the chest. I mean, there were times in the summer where she'd be sitting in her chair in the living room, whacking herself. I'd leave at eight o'clock in the morning, come back four days later and I'd park my bike. The windows would be open and I could still hear the thuds from her hitting herself in the chest. It went Mm. on and on and on. It never ended. It was it was behavior like I had never seen or heard before, and uh, like I said, it, I internalized it and suppressed it. But uh, my adult life has has been absolute hell.
0: Um, well, yes, your body is in survival mode. Your body can't just switch out. Your nervous system's completely shifted, and like you said, the chemist, the whole chemistry, biology of your body it's just it it changed you. It, it did. That's it totally what trauma did. does, right? Um, you know, yes. you, you know, and while you were saying all these things, I'm like, did, were you able to tell anybody, were you able to, when your mother spilled that soup, when you went to the doctor and the, did the doctor ask what happened? I don't
1: remember. I don't remember. I don't remember, yeah, I I don't was remember very her ever saying a word we never had conversations. It was, she, she was always kind of like in a trance kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, growing up, we were completely, uh, we were isolated physically where we lived in this small town in northern Ontario, Canada. But uh, she never, she never spoke to us after that, after those incidents. You know when it all started back in you know '71, and my sister confirms this that <clears throat> this began to start after her beloved she her father died, who was greatly she loved him she adored him. He was killed in a freak uh, train accident. He went, I think he was drunk. He stumbled mm-hmm. onto a train track and he was run over and he had his legs cut off and that's how oh he died. <clears throat> and she was completely traumatized herself by that. But uh, I remember as a small child, and I confirmed this with my sister, my sister and I haven't even talked we've talked once about this all of our, our lifetimes. She confirmed the fact that, um, you know, her and, my mother and her sister, my aunt, they were uh, involved in seances and stuff because they wanted to contact their beloved father. And I think that was the entry point for the demonic invasion. And uh, that's definitely what it is. I mean, over the last 30 years, this is what got me into this, this uh, category of learning about, uh, you know, the demonic entities and and the unseen realm and how it all works, you know, what are the limits and boundaries and And, you know, for people that are truly possessed, and I'm not talking about people that are mentally disturbed, there's a complete difference.
0: There are signs
1: and characteristics that definitely define someone who's demonically possessed as opposed to somebody who is just really mentally ill. There are characteristics that are completely off the charts. And my mother, after doing all of these uh, researching, you know, she ticked off all the boxes And, you know, I I recount now all of her speech and the things that she would say. And there was definitely, I noticed, you know, it frustrated me because she'd speak in these foreign languages. And to this day, I learned foreign languages. I learned five foreign languages on my own because it frustrated me to not understand what she was saying. I mean, it was horrific listening to her. But, you know, when you hear it every day and you're seeing it every day, you become desensitized. And then it becomes just a bunch of a bunch of mumbling. So, you know, I know that she was speaking in, in, in multiple languages and that caused me in later in life to learn languages because i was so frustrated, you know, mm-hmm. that was one of the end results of, 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 this behavior and this trauma, you know, and, yeah. uh, I have so many things wrong with me because of the trauma. I'm surprised I'm still alive at 54. I thought I would have died in my thirties because of my, my manic, you know, I went through mania where I would walk 30 miles in one day and bare feet to get the glass stuck in the bottom of my feet, just to feel pain. I, I yeah, you know, I would walk yeah. from Santa Monica all the way to Glendale and people from California know that that's like 25 miles. And I would do that on a regular basis and I would do it in bare feet so that I would get glass stuck in my feet so I could feel something because I couldn't feel anything. You know, I've been a walking shell for, you know, some 40 years. You know, I mean, so where do you start?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I I mean, you know, in in your book, you talked about an accident that your mother had um, where she actually went through a windshield um, and was never treated. Uh, And and that in my head, as soon as I read that, I was just like, oh, well, maybe this had contributed to her behaviors. Um, Do you believe that? Do you believe that this incident did where she, I mean, her head went through a windshield. I can assume that that could cause so many mental health issues.
1: Yes. And, and I put that in there purposely. If I wanted to sell books and make it a sensationalism, I could have left that out, but mm -hmm. I put that in there because, you know, like I said, there is a difference between mental illness and, and this started before she had an accident. She never learned how to drive. That's why she had that accident when she was driving and she never learned how to drive. But, you know, and I we always attributed it to some sort of mental illness, probably from that accident. But the things that she did, she prophesied. She she my sister would tell me that, oh, yeah, she she said you know, she prophesied about JF Kennedy being shot, a bunch of other historical things. She would tell me where I was. She would tell my father where he was. I was like, how do you know this? Because she was 260 pounds and never left the house. She would just go in the neighborhood, you know, because she couldn't walk. She was seriously Mm -hmm. obese. But, you know, after researching, you know, demonic oppression, demonic possession, and exorcism, I mean, real cases real cases that dumbfounded, you know, the worst of the worst. She ticked all the boxes. And like I said, mental illness, mental illness does, does not make, I mean, why does mental illness not make you super happy? You know, why does it go to the deviant, you know, and, and demonic entities, they love to hide behind epilepsy and all these kinds of things because it creates a chaos in the community about, what is demonic possession and what is mental mental uh, uh, instability, you know, but mm-hmm. her behavior, I mean, her speech was always ungodly. She always spoke blasphemy. She always spoke in scatological terms. So I took all of those things that she said, and I lined them up with other demonic possession cases, you know, particularly the Annalisa Michelle case, because they have, you know, six hours of, of that and I hear the same person. I can hear the gate in the speech patterns of the demonic entities and other uh, uh, trans uh, transcripts that I've read over, you know, other um, historical demonic exorcisms that are, you know, real. I'm not talking about ones that are, yeah, could be or couldn't be, but ones that were like full blown, like the one that was uh, modeled the exorcist, you know, mm-hmm. William Blatty's book. You know, Ronald, the Ronald Doe case, she did the exact same things. She sang choir-like songs at a loud voice. She whistled loud and then would go into these crazy voices, you know, and go, tada, 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 you know, and, and going going into all of these languages and switching voices really, really fast. You know, having conversations, arguing, just chaos, chaos. And yeah. after 30 years of doing all of this research. She ticked off every box of demonic uh, um, possession, of complete demonic possession. I've talked to many exorcists, uh, many people that knew Malachi Martin and all of his cases, and she's no exception. She was Did- exactly like all of them.
0: Were you? And I, I'm assuming you didn't realize this until after you were you left home.
1: Yes, and probably oh, so. There was no reaction. way you
0: could reach out to religious entities or anyone who would specialize in something like that.
1: No, we had no idea. Like I said, it was so gradual, but the decline was was so severe. But it took time, and that's something about demonic possession that people don't understand. It doesn't happen like you know, oh, come in to me, like on The Exorcist. You know, he says, "Come into me," and boing, and all of a sudden, these eyes are rolling back, and again. It takes time because it's an invitation, and and you know they take over certain parts of the body. But I'll tell you, my mother. There were two times I can remember during the whole horrific ordeal that she reached out to me, where she snapped out of all of these voices, and there were two times, and two both times she said the exact same thing. I was walking through the living room. Both times this happened. I think one was coming and one was going, and she stopped me. And she said to me in her normal speaking voice, which is the only two times I heard her normal speaking voice, other than when she was being interrogated by the police and the mental institution, she said, they're coming into me. They're running up the back of my spine and perching in my head. The second she was finished that sentence, snap, she went right back into and fighting with herself and then beginning to hit herself with the log again until she was bloody, Mm. you know. This two times, she said that, and I, you know, as a, you know, as a teenager, I'm like, whatever, I was losing my mind at that point, you know, I was ready to commit suicide, you know, but, you know, now I remember, and I look back at, at all this stuff, you know, I look at, I, I analyze her, her life and everything that she said in the whole 12 years. And I compare that and I I, like a detective, you know, you put a suspect on the board and you begin to draw timelines, you know, and I did that with several of the of the most most uh, um, pronounced demonic exorcist cases that I could get my hands on. And she ticked off all the boxes. She had all of those characteristics. So now as a 54 year old, well, I've known this for quite a while that I am convinced 100% that that is what was going on. And, you know, the mission was complete, you know, she died at 46 years old, you know, Mm -hmm. 46 years old, she had no gray hair, no nothing. And she died at 46, you know, and I believe that even though my sister and my father was there sporadically, you know, I was always the target because my sister took off and I became a Christian. And you know, if you understand demonic entities, they don't like it when you talk about Jesus because they don't want people to be saved. And you know, they would have knowledge of that, pre-knowledge of that, that I was going to be saved. So their destruction was for me. And I'll tell you something, over the last 30 years, I have had and the the paranormal activity has not stopped. In fact, just last week we were sitting in the house and the fan went on on the uh on the overhead over the oven, mm-hmm. it went on by itself. And then 10 minutes later, the uh, radio turned on all by itself.
0: <laughs> you know, wow. and
1: I've had tons of that over the years. We've had banging and knocking and scratching in the house so bad that my wife ran outside and wouldn't go back in the house. And I had to come home. You know, I, I mean, it just didn't end with my mother. But I'm not scared of it at all because I have dominion over this. You know, and when I speak the name of Jesus, that stuff's gone. And then they try again another six months later. Something else will happen. And my kids have experienced the same thing. You know, uh, mm. it, it's 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 a fascinating. It's fascinating now that I know what's going on, but it's been terrorizing. And I, I, you know, I'm I can't get rid of the scars, so to speak. I mean, I still black out, and I can't help that. Yeah, I shake every night when i when I go to as soon as the sun goes down, my face goes numb, and I wake up with my face numb, sometimes so bad I can't even speak because my lips are are so completely numb that I'm like, hoo, 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 you know mm. And you know you would expect a psychiatrist would expect that the trauma that I went through would have equal results if it were true. And that's what I have. I have such severe PTSD. Almost to the point of like when you say shell shock victims in World War One, if you've seen videos of that, I mean I shake incessantly bad so much so that you can see my hand. I can't keep it still for a second, you know. And I still black out, and I still my face goes numb every night, every night of my life, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, it just it makes sense that this person who is supposed to be your caregiver, yeah. Trying, I mean, just. All demonic and all of the this aside, but just her wanting to kill you, attempting yes. to murder you,
1: is dramatic.
0: That is that is I I I can't even I can't even imagine what that would have done to you. And and it makes me wonder, you know, you said you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that your father was at his girlfriend's house. Mm-hmm. Is there any way that your father could have taken you out of you know, your mother's home.
1: Yeah. Well, this is the point of the interview that I always tell people, you know, people want to know where well, what's going on with the dad. Well, let mm-hmm. me tell you, my father, I love my father, but my father suffers from severe PTSD too. He was a mm-hmm. child in World War II in Italy. And he watched his father being shot at by the Nazis. They had their donkey blow up and all the guts. You know, come on to them while they were hiding, you know, while the air invasion was taking place. You know, he lived in government housing. He was a refugee for four years in Sabaldia. He got messed up and he, to this day, he's 89 years old. He still lives like he's in the war. Mm. He, he's so disconnected from life. He doesn't speak English that well, but he's so disconnected from life. He can't even turn on the lights in his house until it's completely dark you know, all of those kind of things. He's so, and he shakes, he has severe, and I never knew that. And I always was, you know, I got mad at my father in my thirties and I yelled at him and I told him what a crappy father is. And he wasn't there for me and he should have helped me, you know, now I'm, you know, living out the results of this. And he said, he basically grew up the same way that he had severe PTSD as a child, as an adult, you know, because of the war, hearing the bombs going off for three days I mean, that's traumatizing, you know, hearing the explosions going off, seeing your father being shot at, you know, their family pets being blown up and the guts thrown on them and stuff like this and, you know, scraping around for food and stuff like this. And this went on for years, you know, and then the aftermath of that was being a refugee and living in government housing. You know, he had six brothers and sisters. They live in one room you know, and then, and then all of a sudden being adult and okay, you're an adult now go, go live. And you're <laughs> to function, you know, and that was my problem. You know, everybody asks me, you know, so when you were away from your mother, you know, did life get better? Did you feel relieved? And I've said, no, mm-hmm. it actually got worse. Now I had to live out my childhood as an adult. And you, you were know?
0: probably in a safe place yet in your mind, you were always on high alert. And, and that, so is that a, could even be worse
1: at times. That is an accurate statement. In fact, I was like the guy in Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind. I mm-hmm. every room I went into, whether where there was people, I had to assess the threat level. If mm-hmm. I could make sure that I could take somebody out, if somebody was a threat to me, where the doors were, it was exhausting. And I lived like that for decades. I mean, I'm I'm older now. And now I just don't care anymore. So now I'm like super tired because I've li- I lived my life on 11, you know, and, you know, I, I was a complete overachiever, you know, everything I did, I, I did to the extreme, you know, not knowing that, that, you know, Hey, you don't have to be like that. You can calm down. I never calmed down, you know, and I'm still extreme to this day, except I'm just more tired. But uh, the after effects of my childhood have been absolutely devastating. I can't hold a job. You know, that's why I'm a musician, because I I play a couple hours. You know, I don't have to deal with people a couple hours. I pack up and I'm gone. You know, it has affected me financially because I wanted to be a linguistics diplomat, you know, as a kid. I, you know, college was like, well, that's not for me. That's for other people. You know, that's Mm -hmm. other, other people that have that are normal. So I lost all of that. I lost the chance of having a good living, you know, and, and, but you know, I did manage to eke out, you know, a family and I've put my wife through hell, but she stayed with me for 36 years. And God bless her, she's been, she's been amazing, you know, and I've been not easy to deal with because of the things that not because I'm a, you know, angry or or grumpy, anything like that. It's because of what the TSPTSD has done to my system. I'm not able to be in crowds. I can't stand loud noises. You know, I can't stand threatening situations. I can't stand stress period, or else I'll pass out, you mm. know, just stuff like that. You know, I mean, I'm hard to live with. It's kind of like high maintenance, but then I'm like, <laughs> low, yeah, but then I'm low maintenance because, you know, I live my life on my own. I, I, I have very few friends. I don't socialize, you know? So, and it was very difficult to put this book out. My, My girls actually convinced me and uh, the producer of uh, the movie uh, Hostage to the Devil, uh, Marty Stalker, he convinced me really to put it out there because I was afraid of the rejection. It's like that's the last thing I need. I've been rejected by my family, the authorities, social services. Who's on my side? You know, no one, you know. So, you know, it was a difficult decision to to allow the book to come out, you know, but I have to give credit to Marty Stalker. Because he's the one that believed in me. He says, He says, man, you know, I know your story's true. And that was another thing. You know, I didn't do this to sell books, you know, and to be a millionaire or anything. (laughs) You know, I did this because my kid said, dad, just like you wanted help and no one came to your rescue, there could be somebody else out there that's going through something similar
0: that says, oh, my God,
1: this guy didn't reach out for help. This is kind of what's happening to me. I need to reach out.
0: Mm-hmm. because it
1: never came. It never crossed my mind to reach out to anyone. I mean, this was just our life, you know, Cause you
0: thought it was probably just you who was experiencing. It, yeah. yeah. You didn't think you were there to help people, but you are. And I think that's amazing.
1: Well, I, I, I hope so. I hope so. Because, you know, that's the therapeutic part of, about it is to just have people believe me. Mm-hmm. This is what happened. There's, there's, there's no, I have no reason to uh, uh, bolster the story or to uh, you know make it more sensational than it is. It is what it is. Yeah. This is what really happened to me, and more so. There's stuff I didn't even put in the book because it's so gross and and, uh, and abominable. You know what my mother did. You know just so wicked and evil. I thought I can't even print that kind of stuff. You know, enough's enough. <laughs> my you <goodness>. know. <clears throat> Do you uh, when your mother
0: died? Did you feel at peace?
1: No. Absolutely not. Because, you know, at the end of the day, that was the first time when, when I got the call and they told me, they told me that she had died. <clears throat> that was the first time that I, I felt in my heart. That was my mother, you know,
0: mm. that
1: was the woman that, that bore me, even though, because, you know, that's when I began to understand that she was a victim as well. Right. You know, she wasn't a perpetrator you know, she wasn't the perpetrator of this cacophony of nonsense. You know, she was a victim as well. And that's how I see her today. And of course, you know, I'm not able to tell her I love her. I was never able to tell her I love her. Because she was unlovable, you know, but uh, I lived with that, you know, as well, the rest of my life that I, you know, I wasn't able to see the truth. But I was a child, you know, I was a child. And, and I had no comprehension. You know, it took me, it took me decades to, to really understand what happened to me because I never revisited, you know, I went on with life, like, you know, like everybody has a life. You know what I mean? You don't yeah. go up to somebody and start talking to me. Oh, let me tell you about how screwed up my life was. You just <laughs> go and live life, you know. But then I couldn't live life. And I kept failing, failing at everything. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with me? So in my twenties. I was like, why can't I do this? I couldn't talk on the phone for a decade. I, I was inept. I didn't have social skills. <clears throat> you know, I, I couldn't even talk on the phone. You know, how, how does an adult do life like that? You know, and that's when I began to see there's something seriously wrong with me. And that's when I got diagnosed with PTSD, you know, and I'm like, okay, so I have PTSD. Where did it come from? I actually had to ask myself where it came from. <laughs> Yeah. And then when I began to analyze my life and go, Oh my God. And start to think about the things and my wife would say to me, you know, you know, that's not normal. Right. Mm. And I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) At least you had
0: her to tell you that.
1: Yeah. She was a great sounding board. I mean, she modeled love for me. I mean, I never experienced love. My Mm. parents didn't love me. I was never hugged. I was never kissed. I was never touched, you know, and my, my wife, she's the one that modeled love for me. And thank God, because I was able to transfer that to my children and now my grandchildren.
0: Yeah. You you are able to break the cycle of just because I, I mean, I don't even know what to call it from your mother's side, but the fact that you are able to model love for your own children is is important to recognize and, and really pat yourself on the back for, because people who experience PTSD, they really, you know, they really struggle at mundane tasks, <laughs> um, yes, everyday tasks, and and providing for a family, raising a family. That yes. that's exceptionally difficult for anyone for someone who yes. hasn't experienced PTSD. So I think you, right there, should should realize that 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 you've accomplished a lot.
1: Yeah, um, the struggle has been enormous. I can't even tell you the simplest things in life are so difficult and weighty for me, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I've just, <clears throat> I'm so tired now, you know, but the, 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 the thing that sticks with me the most is, isn't what my mother did or isn't what I saw or what I experienced. It's the loneliness knowing that I can't relate to anybody. You know, I, I, you know, I, this is, this is not dinner table talk. <laughs> you know, you know, or, you know, somebody you meet for first time, you know, I don't retain friendships because, you know, if people, you know, begin to understand my background, you know, they think somehow you're, you're cursed, you know, and that's been the hardest part for me is the loneliness. I I can't relate to anybody. Nobody can relate to me. I even reached out to the author of the book, It, um, you know, a child called It, Dave Pelzer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, uh, you know, they gave me some, some, you know, gen- auto-generated response. You know, I just wanted to connect with somebody who had been some through something that was similar, so I didn't feel so alone. But uh, that's still to this day. It's still the hardest thing I deal with, is to know that I can't relate to anybody. <clears throat> it's hard for me to to uh, have a relationship with a friend or somebody. You know, because of my background, because you know, I don't see the world like everybody sees the world. You know, yeah. I look at everything different, you know, I, I'm, I'm a survivalist, you know, I, I see everything as a threat and, and, uh, you know, I have to, I have to look behind the scenes to make sure I'm going to be okay. I have to, you know, research things. If that's a situation I want to get myself into because if it's too stressful, I'll pass out and it, you know, it affects my life so greatly and it's tiring, Laura Lee, I'll tell you, I I'm so exhausted. You know, but I can't help it. I I can't defer to normal because I don't know what it is, and I don't know how to achieve it because my body chemistry won't allow it.
0: I, I think it's. I think it'd be safe to say that I don't think anyone's really normal. They can yeah. just pretend to be normal, or sure. what society claims is to be normal. Um, is there any? Uh, anyone you talk to about this has any, um, like a a therapist who, who can, who can hear you out. I mean, even if it's just the PTSD, that's that right there. I feel like, you know, healing that, you know, you don't need to get into the nuts and bolts of the, your, your childhood and the awful things that happened, but what it did and how it, how it, how it just, completely changed your nervous system is there any but any way that you're is there is there work that you're doing
1: well when I talk to psychiatrists and I talk to therapists you know they always tell me they always say so tell me your story because they want to know the severity Mm -hmm. because they're not inside of you they can't feel what you're feeling so they got to know what the severity is and then they kind of put that on a meter you know and all of the psychiatrists that I've talked to they have basically told me, you know, there's nothing I can do. I I can't really help you. I mean, I can give you Lexapro, which I'm on, which gives me a window of opportunity to see things a little more, uh, you know, gives me an opportunity to not uh, impulsively respond, you Mm -hmm. know. But other than that, I mean, no one has been able to give me tools that can deal with the severity of my PTSD. You know, they, they basically say, you know, all you got to do is you got to make good choices and, (laughs) and just live the best life you can and be on meds. There really Mm -hmm. is no answer for severe PTSD. There really isn't because it's changed. My body's going to do, see, my body does what I don't want it to do. It has a Mm -hmm. mind of its own because it was so suppressed for so long. It changed all my chemical and hormones You know, it changed everything. It just does what it wants to do, and I have no, I have no control. Like when the shaking starts, I know it's nighttime. It's almost Mm. like a clock.
0: Yeah,
1: Yeah, yes, your body knows. Yes, here I begin to shake, and then I have to, I, I, I tell my wife all the time, okay, it's time for my my pill, because I take Remeron, which knocks me out. Because if I don't get knocked out, the severity of the shaking and the anxiety, I have to call the medics. And then they have to come in and, you know, shoot me with, with a high dosage of, uh, you know, something to really calm me down and believe me, I've, I've done that probably 30 times over the last three, four years, you know, and I've tried to get off the stuff I've tried. My body won't let me, it just, it reacts on its own, you know, sunset comes and here goes my face starting to get numb. And I go, you know what? I got to go to sleep. I take my, my Remeron so that I can bear I can bear the freezing of my face and the shaking, and I fall asleep. And then how do I wake up? I wake up in in tremors and panic, because the drug wears off. And that's how I know it's time to get up, because my face is numb and my body. Sh- I have the tremors inside. You know when you have like a shiver, mm-hmm. and you have a shiver, it just goes whoa, 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 like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I have tremors like that, and they come every couple of seconds, and they could just keep keep tremor, keep tremoring like that. And then my face is numb. And then, you know, the drug wears off and it's time to get up, you know,
0: have you, that's my life. Have you looked into like holistic, um, like, um, I, something that worked for me was EMDR, um, which is like, kind of like, like therapy. It basically takes some of the memories from your, um, emotional side of your brain and kind of turn, um, kind of moves it to your rational side of your brain. Um, it's Mm -hmm. just, it's, um, and, and we, we can talk about this afterwards, but, um, yeah, I think that I, 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 my heart goes out to you. I know PTSD and I, and, and even the level that you've experienced, I can't, I can't imagine how, um, how it is to wake up every day Um, But I think that you're doing so much to help yourself and help your family um, and just kind of break this cycle of 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 trauma. So, yeah, I don't want to pass it
1: on. That's for sure. Yeah, that's that's the one thing that when we had children, well, my first child, when she came, that's when I had a breakdown because the responsibility was so Mm -hmm. I was like, I, I, I can't even take care of myself. I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't even know who I am. And now I've got a child. So I had a breakdown and I had, you know, several years of serious depression was in lockdown for suicide and all this kind of stuff. And, but, you know, I decided after all of that, you know, I don't want to carry this on. I don't want to destroy my family. I want to be a happy, a good father and good husband, you know, and I've tried to do that my very best you know, and, you know, like I said, there's aspects of it. I I have no control over because my body just, you know, does what it wants to do. But, you know, I do have a choice. I do have a choice to be happy. I do have a choice to love my kids, to tell them I love them, to hug them, Mm -hmm. my grandkids. And I do it all the time. I do it all the time. I see them every week, you know, and I've made a, made a, a pact with myself to make sure that, that I'm the best person I possibly can. And, you know, it's it's exhausting because that's not who my chemicals in my body tell me I am. Mm-hmm. I'm the one that wants to flee. I want to run. I want to hide. I want to get away from the situation and have and have peace and quiet and be alone. That's That's what my body tells me. You know, that fight or flight, you know, and I experience it all day long, every day until the shaking starts. And then I'm medicated. And then we start the whole thing the next day over again. That is my life. But somewhere in there, you know, you can either kill yourself, medicate to death, you know, uh, you know, drink, you know, be an alcoholic, or you can choose to be happy and and make the best of it. Mm. And, uh, you know, that is the hardest decision to make, to say you want to make the best out of it because it takes effort. And we all know as people, effort is effort, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, you know, the the more uh, oppression you have against you, the more of an effort you have to make. You know, but that's what I've decided. You know, I've decided to 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 be a good father. I don't want I don't want to die and have my children go, Oh my God, my father was miserable. I'm glad he's dead. You know, I want my, my children to miss me and my grandchildren to miss me and to love me while while I'm here, you know, and I make every every effort to do so.
0: And I and I believe they know it. I don't know them, but yes, just, they do. <laughs> just what you're telling me um and what you've done. With your life, it 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 tells me that they do. So thank Michael, thank you so much for joining me to today. I I really appreciate your time and you sharing uh, your story and your vulnerability. Um, I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you so much, Lauria. I, I appreciate it. Thank you for being so gracious and 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 so uh, um um compassionate. You know, this is part of the therapy for me, just as people can even just believe me because I know it's a crazy story. I know it's hard to believe. And I believe me, I get, I get texts and messages from people all over the world going, I don't believe you. You're trying to sell books and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And I wish I could (laughs) say that, that it wasn't true. I wish, you know, but uh, it's therapy just to know that there's, you know, people on the other, on the other end of the line, you know, believing you and having compassion. So thank you so much for that.
0: Thank you. That was Michael author, Michael Gagliardi, author of Devil Take the Hindmost part one and part two. For more on Michael, visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's the letter A tstpodcast.com. Also, the latest issue of Authentic Insider April's edition is out, which you can find at my website. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. Join us next Thursday when we go back to Fireside Chat live with author Jeff Romig of the book Don't Fucking Kill Yourself. Yourself. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. Take care.